Welcome to Middle East Forum Century Radio. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM. It's a lovely morning in Philadelphia today, the day before Thanksgiving, and there is a lot of thanks to go around for the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. After President Donald Trump issued a full-throated statement in defense of the Arab kingdom, much to the chagrin of his opponents here in the United States, and also much to the chagrin of the pro-Iran nuclear deal coalition. Let's get right into the Khashoggi affair, which we've been covering for the last seven weeks, and determine whether or not this is the end of the U.S. involvement and investigation into the uh, assassination of this journalist who most recently wrote for the Washington Post, and to see if we'll be able to turn a leaf in the news cycle before next Wednesday's show. First, to read Donald Trump's statement, we have to be able to do some excerpts from it. And then I'd like to go into the ability to give you a little bit of analysis, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, word by word. In Time Magazine, which was able to print a full copy of this statement, they read, the following is a text of a statement from President Donald Trump on the title, Standing with Saudi Arabia, after the killing of U.S.-based columnist Jamal Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. U.S. intelligence officials have concluded that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the kingdom's de facto leader, ordered the October 2nd killing. So let's start off. Trump first writes in the first line, America first, exclamation point. The world is a very dangerous place, he writes. This is the epitome of the Trump foreign policy, whether it applies to trade relations to the way in which we conduct our social and cultural affairs overseas, or our bilateral relationships between the United States and other governments and other countries. When he says America first, what I believe he's trying to say is, is that America's national interests go beyond and transcend any other issues that are occurring nationally. Now, this is a stark difference from the way in which President Obama and even President Bush and President Clinton had their foreign policies oriented. But it also reveals a dark secret about the history of American presidents vis-a-vis their relationship with Saudi Arabia, one that I think is real, but also one that may find us in a troubled position regarding our moral position and our moral compass in the rest of the world. When Trump is saying America first, and he means it in the context of Saudi Arabia, there are two sides of issues that we have to look at. One, the benefits that the United States gets from its relationship with Saudi Arabia. And second, the disadvantages that we have of being in a very close relationship with the kingdom. First benefit, the ability for the United States to influence global oil prices by having influence over the production of the Saudi market. Saudi Arabia still to this day is one of the top two or three oil exporters and natural gas exporters around the world. They are a member of OPEC, the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries, and they have some of the largest reserves of any hydrocarbon-based resources of any country throughout the rest of the world. I think second maybe to Iran and possibly to Russia and also the United States if we look at the export capability per capita on a million barrel a day basis. If the Saudis, like they did back in the 70s, want to turn off the spigot to the oil flowing to the rest of the world, the global economy could be in crisis. If the U.S. asks them to increase production, they're more likely to do so if we have a positive relationship with them rather than have a negative relationship. On the downside for this relationship with the global oil markets, they're still part of a cartel. We find that they are still acting in concert with other countries that have an interest to the United States. And 
I think on balance, the president is saying we put America's energy needs first as in America first, rather than any qualms or any other uh, issues that we might have with a Saudi oil production. The second benefit of the close U.S.-Saudi relationship is other markets that are not related based on energy. The Saudi government made commitments of $450 billion in weapons purchases. Some individuals say it's only $110 billion because that's new equipment from Lockheed Martin. Others would argue that this includes ammunition, training, personnel, logistics, and other ways to bolster the Saudi military. The downside of having such a close relationship with the Saudi military is, is that the United States must be in cahoots or by hook or by crook relate itself with a potentially corrupt military force. Not corrupt in so far as they act by reward and favor and it's hardly a meritocracy where we have princes becoming generals, but corrupt that they may be involved in conflicts that the United States may disagree with. This brings us to the third balance of the U.S.-Saudi mutual interest, which is fighting mutual enemies, whether that be the Houthis in Yemen, Shia forces in Lebanon, Syria, and in Iraq, or the biggest mutual threat to the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, which is the theocratic regime in Iran. Now, let's take that Iran example and go to the third paragraph that Trump says, and I quote, the country of Iran, as an example, is responsible for a bloody proxy war against Saudi Arabia and Yemen, trying to destabilize Iraq's fragile attempts at democracy, supporting the terror group Hezbollah in Lebanon, propping up dictator Bashar Assad in Syria, who has killed millions of his own citizens, and much more. Likewise, the Iranians have killed many Americans and other innocent people throughout the Middle East. Iran states openly, and with great force, death to America and death to Israel, Iran is considered the world's leading sponsor of terror. So if you have a kingdom where, I believe it was 16 or 17 of the 9-11 hijackers came from back in 2001, now 17 years later, acting as the eastern vanguard of the U.S. coalition fighting Iran in the Middle East, bolstered by the United Arab Emirates and other GCC countries like Bahrain, would you rather have them fighting on your side or fighting against you? And maybe a, a worst case scenario, having them act as a neutral arbiter between the two countries, like Qatar does, like Oman does, even to a certain extent, like some non-Arab and non-Muslim countries do, like China and Iran. If I look at the global strategy that the United States has to have in terms of building its coalition against Iranian-backed Shia-led terrorism in these four or five countries where they are very active in proxy battles against Saudi Arabia and other American allies like Israel, I'd rather have the Saudis on our side. Now, on the opposite side of this in the criticism, does this mean that Saudi Arabia gets a blank check in the way it operates these wars against Yemeni rebels by kidnapping the Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri and forcing him to resign in a televised statement from Saudi Arabia or conducting their own assassination campaigns in Turkey like they did to Jamal Khashoggi? I'd rather keep the Saudis close, sanction the individuals behind the assassination the Khashoggi affair, and wrap the crown prince over the fingers rather than to replace him with another leader that may be less sympathetic to American strategic goals in that region. When we put America's interest in the entire Middle East versus the assassination of one individual, 
unfortunately, and morally, it may be wrong in terms of the one-to-one analysis, we must put our cards with the Saudis, not with that of the mullahs and the tyrants in Iran, the main backers who are trying to splinter American interests vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia. And the last paragraph that Trump puts forward addresses domestic concern with America still backing the Saudi government after the Khashoggi affair took place. I quote, I understand there are members of Congress who for political or other reasons would like to go in a different direction and they are free to do so. I will consider whatever ideas are presented to me, but only if they are consistent with the absolute safety and security of America. After the United States, Saudi Arabia is the largest oil producing nation in the world. They have worked closely with us on multiple levels and at reasonable levels by being very responsive to Trump's request to keeping oil prices at reasonable levels. As president of the United States, I intend to ensure that in a very dangerous world, America is pursuing its national interests and vigorously contesting countries that wish to do us harm. Very simple. It is called America first. This isn't about the U.S. having a super kind of nationalism in exerting its foreign policy vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia. It's about America putting its national interests first and others second. More after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at meforum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. It has been one week since the eruption of conflict between Hamas and Israel in the Gaza Strip. And we gave a uh, pretty, uh, uh, I I think, deep analysis of what was going on with the uh, upcoming Israeli elections that were called after the defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, of that country had subsequently resigned from the security cabinet after the strikes took place. Now on Wednesday, November 21st, we find ourselves in a situation where there is a a certain amount of uncertainty in the Israeli government, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is able to govern his coalition and his government with only 61 members of Knesset, a razor-thin majority considering that the House only holds 120 seats 
uh, in total. Uh, the chair of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee of the Knesset, a man named Avi Dichter, made a statement last week during a hearing where he said it was the first time that the Israelis had seen the prime minister, the defense minister, and the foreign minister brief his committee all at the same time. Now, it was funny because these three ministries are being controlled by Benjamin Netanyahu, where all of the power in Israel's defense and foreign affairs decision-making rests solely with him. If you want to send an envoy out, you have to get his approval. If you want to order a military strike, he has to give your approval. If he'd like to do anything in the nation, state, and, and affairs of the country, the prime minister has to sign off on it. Now, one of the strengths of the primary of a parliamentary democracy is being able to have a division of power resting with different parties that then constitute different ministries after an election. But by having a monopoly of Israel's security affairs and oversight over every single vestige of the Israeli government only in the hands of Mr. Netanyahu, this portends a danger for Israeli democracy. The security cabinet, which comprises anywhere between 7 and 14 ministers, is a sub-cabinet, or what they call in Israel a kitchen cabinet, of the wider decision-making authority allotted to the full Israeli cabinet, which constitutes some 28 ministers. Any recommendation and any discussion, any debate that takes place on the security affairs of that nation-state rests on there being a healthy division of democratic opinion and security opinion, not just coming from Israel's ministers, but also coming from its generals and the heads of its security services. When you had a minister who would control the army, in this case the defense minister or the former defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, he might be able to present a different opinion in terms of the way in which the country would go with its security direction, different than that of the prime minister. But the decisions which are being made now will rest solely on the opinions of security heads that are seen by one person. Quickly after the resignation of the defense minister, the education minister, a man named Naftali Bennett, who is the head of another party, and his partner in the coalition from his same party, Ayala Shaked, came forward and demanded that Bennett receive the defense ministry in order to have that balance of power between the competing interests in the government. Netanyahu put a challenge to Bennett saying, I will not give you the defense ministry. I am putting the security of the nation beyond that of partisan politics. Another way to look at that, though, would be that he's putting the interests of his party and of his own career first, rather than the division of democracy that must take place in any security cabinet. It's not like the system in the United States where we have three separate branches of government, the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive. In Israel, all the power rests in the legislature, considering the fact that it's a unicameral parliament. And those who sit in parliament also constitute the government and the executive branch. So after Bennett made this demand, Netanyahu had two options. He could have given Bennett the defense ministry, or he could have said, no, I don't want to do this and we're going to elections. But Netanyahu, who was often called the magician of Israeli politics, and he does have a local connection here in Philadelphia, having went to Cheltenham High School before he went back to Israel to serve in the army, in the 1960s. But faced with this ultimatum, Netanyahu came up with a third option, and that was to put the challenge of Bennett's demand back into his lap. And he said quite unequivocally that if you would like to become the defense minister, there is no way that you will do that in my own coalition. And you, sir, are putting politics before the security of the state.
even while at the same time Netanyahu's statement was very political. It was smashing both his former rival in the government, Avigdor Lieberman, the former defense minister, and he was putting the presumptive defense minister, Naftali Bennett, back into his place. So now with this concentration of power that we see in Netanyahu's place, there's a few questions that have to be asked for the next year until Israel is required to go to elections in November of 2019. Will Netanyahu place someone else in that defense minister portfolio? Well, the answer rests on the laurels of another member of his coalition, current finance minister Moshe Kahlon. The issue with Kahlon is that he was part of Netanyahu's party going back more than 15 years before he broke off and started his own party called Kulanu, which was formed to fight for the socioeconomic needs of Israel's downtrodden and impoverished classes. Kahlon was able to get six, seven, eight mandates, I'm not sure the exact number, and he's been sitting in Netanyahu's government for the past three years as the finance minister, leading many financial reforms, very much like he did with Israel's cell phone markets when he was a minister of communications in a former government as part of Netanyahu's party, the Likud. Kahlon has stated, even going back so far to last Monday, during a party meeting, that he would not be willing to allow Israel's fiduciary policies to be monitored or to be held hostage by just one member of Knesset because of his looking at the, the uh, uh, ransom that a member of Knesset could ask by only being that one critical vote that could get a nation's budget passed or even just a smaller financial bill. We don't know what's going to happen with Kahlon. He said that we're getting ready for elections in May. But today, on Wednesday, November 21st, the coalition still holds. The wider picture of all of this, besides the analysis on Israel's domestic policies, is what's going on with Israel's relationship vis-a-vis Gaza and the wider question of how Israel's enemies see this current political debacle. Is it to Israeli weakness? Is it to Israeli strength that Netanyahu is still in power? Or is it another concern, which is that Israel may be acting like this to draw its enemies in, only to deliver a final blow to the Hamas in Gaza? and perhaps to extend that conflict to Hezbollah in Lebanon. We'll only know about this when we get into our next segment, looking at the strategic threats that are facing Israeli democracy, both from within, and in my opinion, from without the country, after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. 
and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia. A very interesting article that was published this, just this morning in a newspaper in Israel called Yediot Akronot, written by Alex Fishman, is titled, Hamas has run out of credit, and subtitled, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, is done giving Hamas leeway and is ready to retaliate to any provocation within minutes. With Israel on the verge of general elections, Hamas should not take its cue from the Israeli leadership or from the public. Elections time triggers military pyrotechnics, and not just on the Gaza front. Now, this is what I meant by speaking about Israel's foreign policy. When we get closer to an election, Israel's public is able to sway the actions of the security forces, much to the chagrin of the generals who run those security forces. The politicians act in line with the people. And this should be the way that it usually is. Often there's, there's two kinds of representative democracy. Those politicians who think they're elected to carry out the will of the people, and those, election, those, those who are elected because they believe that the people put their trust in them to make the decisions of, uh, of state and security affairs, regardless of what the public opinion may be. Now, throughout the history of Israeli military conflict, if we look at the 1982 Lebanon War, if we look at the 73 Yom Kippur War, even 67 with the Six-Day War, there has been decisions that have been made by the Israeli government. And, and, and these were decisions that were based on, on countering existential threats that were facing the government of Israel because of what the people who were governed by them decided what was best for the country. In two cases, this of uh, the Six-Day War in 67 and the Yom Kippur War in 73, we saw one prime minister, Levi Eshkol, in 67 celebrated, and we saw the downfall of another prime minister, that of Golda Meir in 73, after the country was almost overran by Egyptian forces. But the first real representative uh, action taken by the Israeli uh, people in terms of major street protests that ended Israel's involvement in a war was in 1982 with the advent of the Four Mothers Movement. And also another organization called Shalom Achshav, which was Peace, peace Now. This is, this is the organization that has always been for the peacenik movement in Israel since the Lebanon War. Thousands of Israelis invaded Beirut or invaded Lebanon going all the way up to Beirut in 1982 under then-Defense Minister Ariel Sharon and Prime Minister Menachem Begin. This ostensibly took place after dozens, if not hundreds, of rockets were being launched at Israeli northern communities by the PLO, who had bases throughout southern Lebanon. After the assassination attempt on the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom, a man named Shlomo Argav, took place, Sharon and Begin saw it as an opportunity to retaliate against the PLO with the objective of kicking them out of Lebanon. And they eventually didn't leave. They, they ended up in Tunis, in Tunisia. But the Israelis stopped their involvement in that war after tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Israelis in a population that was only maybe four or five million citizens back during that time, turned out onto the streets and demanded an Israeli withdrawal from Beirut after a massacre took place carried out by Falange's Christian Lebanese against Palestinians in two refugee camps called Sabra and Shatila. When the Israeli people speak with their feet and march against Israel's leadership, Israeli leaders are getting ready 
to carry out actions that are in line with the people's opinion rather than what may be best for the security of the state itself. I am afraid that this may be the situation that will happen vis-a-vis Hamas. Not because it will be to Israel's detriment that they will go to a war against Hamas, but the fact that it takes the people, some thousands that turned out last week burning tires on Israel's highways and protesting in Tel Aviv against the government's decision to achieve another ceasefire with the terror organization, which is prompting the prime minister to act in the right direction. Up until this point, Netanyahu has made decision after decision based on what he thought was for the best of the security of the country. All the while that for the last 17 years, Israel's southern residents have been living under rocket fire. It will only take a massive popular action by the people like a protest or some civil disobedience to perhaps push him in the right direction, which will encourage the army to go into Gaza and to overthrow Hamas. Not the best situation to be having, to be had by the Israeli security forces, but certainly not the worst if they have an exit plan. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. But on the other side with Hamas, what, are, what exactly are they thinking? And we have to read Fishman's article to understand what is the calculus and the decision making of the leadership of that terror organization in Gaza and both overseas where they have bases in Turkey and Qatar. Fishman writes, Hamas can keep on laughing since it was threatened with destructions many times before. And even the defense minister resigned from his post because he did not believe that a similar plan, which he presented before the Security Council, will be approved by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. However, this time Hamas better not listen to the Israeli leadership but to the wishes of the Israeli public, getting into the analysis that we had just spoken about. The rules have changed, not because the interest changed, but since Israel is on the verge of national general elections, military pyrotechnics and the triggers that happen with verbal pyrotechnics are present on the Gaza front. When the Prime Minister implies he accepted the recent ceasefire agreement with Hamas due to strategic problems elsewhere, one should wonder how urgent these strategic problems are and whether they can cause problems for no reason. Lieberman defined Netanyahu's insinuations as excuses not to do anything. It would be a shame if someone insists on proving him wrong. The army advised the political leadership to accept Hamas's request for a ceasefire due to strategic reasons, but also because of tactical operational re- re- uh, reasons. In an attempt to differentiate itself from the political echelon, which turned Gaza into a political rather than a professional argument, the IDF is trying to show the public its recommendations are strictly professional. And here's the rub where Fishman writes about this, where he gets into a point where he says that Hamas is able to carry out their own game against Israeli security interests because of whether it be reasons of bombing or assassinations, the IDF um, has an, is in a certain tenuous situation. Israel says the direction is positive, explaining why border crossings remain, fuel continues entering the Strip, and Qatari money is still being transferred to Gaza. Since Qatar has committed to continue sending money to the Strip over the next six months, maintaining the Kamalis for that long is worthwhile to Hamas. But the defense minister will not let it go. He continues to claim that the Qatari money and fuel are fueled by the terror organization's military wing, and that the National Security Advisor is deceiving the cabinet by telling them there are mechanisms to prevent it from happening. This is the situation that Israel finds itself in right now. On one hand, it has Qatari ransom payments that are being made to Hamas in the term of $15 million in cash, the first direct cash infusion in over $90 million that's being planned to pay the salaries of the terror organization itself, and money going towards fuel. On the other hand, We have a situation 
where there is close to 1 million Israeli residents of the south of that country that are being held ransom by these payments themselves. If they come in, Hamas still continues its rocket fire. If they don't come in, we may be looking at the last Israel-Hamas war. Asaf Ramorowski, Executive Director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, will be on next after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia. Calling in from a uh, uh, location here on the main line, but not too far, is Dr. Asaf Ramorowski, a Middle East historian and fellow at the Middle East Forum and a senior non-resident research fellow at the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic, for Strategic Studies. Uh, Dr. Romorowski is also the executive director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, or SPME, holding a PhD in Middle East and Mediterranean Studies from King's College London, and having published on a variety of aspects of the Arab-Israeli conflict and American foreign policy in the Middle East. Asaf, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, uh, Asaf, there was just a conference that took place at UCLA out in uh, California held by the National Students for Justice in Palestine Conference. Now, before we get to that, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about more about your organization that you lead and what you do to bring fair and, and I, I think, balanced Middle East analysis and also studies to American college campuses and universities. And then I'd like to get into the conference at UCLA. Sure. Uh, so SPME is a group uh, that was that came about back in 2001, 2002, uh, with the idea of mobilizing faculty to combat the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement. Uh, to date, we are approximately over 40,000 academics around the world, but the majority of our work is North America, uh, helping faculty deal with the environment when it comes to BDS. BDS, as you and many of, of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, uh, 
the disingenuous part about BDS is it puts the Arab-Israeli conflict in Middle East history as a black and white issue. All of us who know and have researched the uh, the region know there's a great deal of gray, which we all live in, uh, and there's a lot to be in, uh, looked at and, and dissected. But the disingenuous part about BDS, and especially relates to the kind of environment professors face as well, I would say even more so than students, is this dogmatic perspective of looking at the Middle East, and particularly the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic, as Israel as the evergreen Goliath and the Palestinians as the evergreen David. Palestinians can do no wrong and the Israelis can do no right. Uh, that has become kind of a religion, especially in the humanities. Uh, to that end, uh, we... Israel today has become, for professors in general, a litmus test of what it means to be a good liberal academic, and to a point of uh, hating Israel, to questioning Israel's right to exist as a token of their academic bona fides. Uh, so we are trying to help professors uh, bring in other perspectives, use our professors that we have on campus. We have what we call faculty chapters. They are individuals, three or four professors tenured on, 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 uh, on, on campuses that uh, we bring them other perspectives, we bring them other resources with the idea of trying to maintain scholarly balance in the classroom. And so we have, you know, we do all of that in a variety of ways. Um, some, you know, uh, some behind the scenes, uh, some, uh, and some going out in front and dealing with the issues just by speaking out and giving a different perspective uh, and trying to help uh, articulate uh, a very complicated issue, uh, not to mention the fact that we've been also helping student groups uh, work with faculty, have a faculty advisor. You can, uh, if you look around the country, many of the SJP groups, which I'm sure we'll get into later, the uh, Palestinian groups, the Muslim groups, all have faculty advisors. Uh, our side, the pro-Israel side, uh, has less uh, to none. And so what we've been doing is also creating bridges between faculty groups and students to make, it, to make their case on campus stronger. So these faculty advisors for the anti-Israel forces on American colleges and uh, university campuses, as you implied, they're not just you know giving this venom out in the classroom, but they're acting as the intellectual backbone of the organizers against Israel. And I would say wider American Middle East policies uh, in, in that region by having tenure. And while a student may come in as a freshman and leave as a, as a senior four years later, these faculty advisors and these professors are acting as the constant stream against pro-Israel sentiment in the United States today. How are they allowed to, on one hand, advise a political body that is present on college campuses during maybe a meeting of a Students for Justice in Palestine chapter at 9 a.m. and then go teach a Middle East 101 class at 11 a.m.? Is there an expectation that they differentiate between the uh, expression of their political opinions outside the classroom and inside, or do we find ourselves in flux and having them sort of meld together? Well, I would say that we find themselves in flux. I mean, I think that uh, in particular since the 1960s, we have seen a growth of what I would continue, what I would argue to be scholar activists, individuals who basically replace their scholarship with activism. And the leaders of, or the organizers of the 1960s are, are today 
tenured professors, groups like GUPS, the General Union for Palestine Students, which started in Berkeley in the 1960s, produced individuals who are today tenured individuals and are now mentoring the, uh, the younger generation. So what you have is an environment where because they see their activism as part and parcel of their scholarship, they don't make a distinction. Case in point would be what we saw recently happen now at the University of Michigan, where we had individuals who refused to write letters of recommendations to students who wanted to go study abroad in Israel. And in their responses, they said, this is part, because I'm a member of the there's BDS movement, and I'm pro-BDS, and as such, I feel this is a need I have to take a stance on, and I am going to, uh, I'm going to make this point by not allow, by not doing my job as a professor. Uh, and so that what you have is this environment where, because this is so dogmatic in their thinking. Uh, facts, of course, don't play into all of this, then they take these stances. And I would argue that with the rise of identity politics today uh, on the majority of North American college campuses, that with identity politics, facts don't matter. So there's no fact and there's no truth. And to that end, they're able to articulate these actions as a replacement of their scholarship. And that, to my mind, really is the bigger problem today when you're looking at the larger landscape where today I would say North America still, thankfully, has some amount of balance. But in the trajectory of where things are going now, people are going to be retiring. There's going to be less amount of individuals who will be able to articulate the the other side. And that, I think, is the the environment or the challenge vis-a-vis the degradation of academia as far as balance. So you you have uh, specifically covered what's going on right now in UCLA. I know that your board has a a few professors that are there, or maybe that there's some professors who are members of SPME that are active uh, on UCLA's campus. Can you tell us what exactly is happening or what happened over the weekend and, and what your organization is doing to combat this pernicious feeling against Israel on the West Coast and across the rest of the states? Sure. Well, the UC system at large is, I would say, more problematic than any of the other systems. Uh, and we've seen a great deal of problems and lack of balance and pro-BDS activism than any other region across North America. Actually, UCLA uh, per campus, I mean, I would say per, you know, per semester, has uh, been inundated with more pro-BDS proposals than any other campus in the UC system. Uh, what you saw this past weekend is you saw an organization, uh, the Student Justice in Palestine, which is an offshoot of a group called the American Muslims for Palestine, which is basically the uh, is a subsidiary of the Muslim Brotherhood in North America. They are the, the umbrella group that is financing a lot of the activities on college campuses, and the SJPs uh, are able to... Uh, apply, coordinate information with, with, uh, from the American Muslims for Palestine. This conference that took place on campus uh, was where they promoted uh, much of this ideology. They promote a lot of their activism. Uh, historically speaking, many of these conferences have brought in these kind of pro-BDS speakers, uh, haters of Israel, uh, haters of the United States for that matter, and uh, are also able to fundraise uh, for these kind of cha- for these kind of uh, charitable activities, and many of them have ties, tainted ties, uh, to Muslim Brotherhood activity in North America and beyond. So that that's exactly what was brought to campus. The what has been happening for the past few weeks uh, is a great deal of 
conversations, to say the least, uh, trying to articulate to the administration about what exactly are they allowing to have happen on campus, namely bringing in uh, terrorism uh, into uh, sanctioned by the university on their college campuses. Uh, there was a there was an op-ed that came out by the chancellor of UCLA that while he agreed that there are problems, he still allowed this to happen on campus. This is part of the issue that you see predominantly happen in North America in contrast to Europe is the debate and the tension vis-a-vis uh, -vis academic freedom. What is academic freedom and what I would argue to be what is hate speech that is being disseminated on most college campuses. To that end, uh, our faculty members have been uh, in discussion with the chancellor's office. Admittedly, obviously, as you can see, the fact that the conference happened, uh, while we've been able to highlight, argue the problems, uh, the university as a system uh, did not accept those arguments, uh, which is problematic. And yeah, I think this is part of the, uh, the challenge that we have. Uh, and the problem any administrator faces, that is to say that where do I draw the line between academic freedom and hate speech and what am I allowed to do? Uh, you will find, uh, you know, I think that the, the case study in Michigan was an example where the professor actually uh, had some serious repercussions to his actions where he lost a paid sabbatical and lost pay as a result of that. So there there was a stance taken. Here there was a uh, question about a sanctioned student group, which SJP happens to be sanctioned on UCLA, and as a result of that, they were allowed to apply for using university facilities and, and making this happen. The university made a distinction saying, well, we don't endorse the ideology of it. We allowed them to be a student group that has access to that information. Again, a very, a very slippery slope as it relates to what happens across the country. Some SJP groups have been able to cross the line where the university has been able to hold them accountable and actually revoke uh, their credentials as a student group on campus. That has not happened at UCLA. Uh, but you know, I, I think that the follow-up is going to be exactly what kind of activism is going to take place as a result of this. Uh, I think that these are the problematic issues that we're facing going forward. Uh, unfortunately, uh, while we have uh, solid individuals and faculty who are speaking out, uh, you don't find that to be the majority. Many people are, are silent. They are afraid for career movement. They are, they're afraid of rocking the boat. Uh, so I would argue that as much as students need support arguing and articulating these messages, faculty need the same, which is exactly what we've been trying to do with our faculty members. Right, and the uh, university's allowance for them to hold this conference may not have been a direct endorsement, but it's still an unqualified endorsement insofar as they allowed it to take place, even though the uh, history that you demonstrated of this organization's connections, both internationally and here in the United States, is to extremist forces, not your regular, everyday uh, you know, uh, political movement. No, not at all. I mean, and, and again, you know, here in our backyard uh, at University of Pennsylvania, for example, a few years back, they hosted the uh, the BDS conference. While University of Pennsylvania argued, we as a university do not endorse BDS. Uh, the English department decided that they did. So Penn's imprimatur still got on the uh, on the flyer whether or not the university endorsed it or not. So perception matters. Uh, and the perception is, of course, that if the logo of a university goes on it, whether it comes from a faculty member individually or a department uh, at large, the perception is that the university gives 
it's a blessing to these kind of events to happen on campus. Asaf, we have to go to a commercial break. Can we keep you for another segment? Sure. Okay, great. After these messages, Asaf Ramorowski returns. We're going to talk about UNRWA and Palestine refugees. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone. They're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. I'm Greg Roman here with our guest, Asafra Murawski, fellow at the Middle East Forum and director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. Asaf, an issue that has came up in the last, uh, uh, or come up in the last three or four months, and that you have written extensively about with scholars like MEF fellow Jonathan Spire, and your most recent article on the issue with MEF fellow Alex Jaffe, has been UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Administration Agency. Now, we have spoken extensively ad nauseum about the Palestine refugee issue here on this program, but I was hoping that we might be able to get an update from you on what has happened since the Trump administration cut funding to UNRWA from U.S. coffers, and has any action taken place to either replenish those funds or to have a change in policy in the way that the U.S. sees Palestinian refugees? Well, um, the UNRWA issue is something that, as you mentioned, I've uh, been in the rodeo for uh, over 20 years. I think it's a obviously a, a problematic issue that uh, all of us have addressed uh, and all of our many friends and colleagues at, at the Middle East Forum. Uh, the, the state as we are to date is that we are in a kind of a limbo situation. I think the fact that uh, Nikki Haley's departure uh, you know, you know, at, at currently is, uh, is put things at a stalemate. Uh, there is a great deal of unclarity as it relates to uh, what Kushner, Greenblatt, and Friedman are going to put forth as it relates to a potential peace process plan. And, and uh, I suspect that when they re- reveal what their plan would look like, UNRWA is going to be part of the uh, conversation, at least because uh, they have put this uh, you know, on the front burner. To that end, uh, while U.S. funding has indeed, has indeed been frozen, 
Uh, UNRWA has been fundraising all around. I mean, there was actually a statement that came out of the Secretary General the other day that they've been able to make up the deficit uh, as far as European countries, other Arab countries, that they've been going around trying to raise money, arguing, you know, which you've seen probably in uh, many visuals across the fact, how are we starving uh, poor Palestinians? Kids will not be allowed to go to school. Uh, those kind of images have uh, allowed them to raise monies. The Europeans, uh, while they have put up double the amount of their usual allocation, is based on the next year's budget. So if they don't make up, the, while well, they made up the deficit for this year, going next year they will be in a short. And so they have some money to keep on operating. I mean, again, uh, UNRWA is a. Uh, large, well-oiled bureaucracy that has been around for over seven decades. Uh, no bureaucracy has any incentive in going out of business. And so they will do whatever it takes to maintain and continue the facade. The recent events in Gaza, obviously, uh, again, play into the UNRWA's raison d'etre about exactly what is happening and why UNRWA services are so needed. So money has been coming into UNRWA. Uh, again, the blame kind of uh, the blame game vis-a-vis -vis the United States is still going on. They're still trying to lobby to renew those funds. Uh, the big picture has to do with the fact: while the money has indeed been frozen, we need to see some policy attached to what to do with UNRWA going forward, uh, and, and that's kind of the uh, limbo situation that we're currently in politically. So, you know, we've spoken about UNRWA's partners, whether it be the U.S. and it cutting its funding or freezing its funding, the makeup that's come from Arab states and from European countries. Even Japan, I think, is one of the top uh, five or ten UNRWA donor right. nation states. But there's often a lack of conversation revolving around the one country that has a say over UNRWA's operations, at least as it deals with the West Bank and Gaza, and that's Israel. There was a letter that was signed, I believe, in 67 or 68 called the Komei Mishelmore letter. This was yep. essentially the license that the Israeli Foreign Ministry and the Defense Ministry, or the government of Israel at that time, gave to UNRWA to allow them to operate and provide social services, health services, whether amalgamation of the services that UNRWA is giving right now to Palestinians in these two areas. And there was a recent article that came out by the now almost former mayor of Jerusalem. I believe he's transitioning out of office right now near Barkat where he said he was taking the opportunity of the U.S. cutting funding to not allow UNRWA to provide services to Palestinians in East Jerusalem and Shufat refugee camp anymore. Can we expect a wider reform from the Israeli government vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with UNRWA? We can hope. I mean, I think that what's unique at this point in time, and this has actually been the historical tension between the United States and the government of Israel, is that every time there has been historically, and there have been congressional language since the 1970s about reforming and trying to look for transparency as it relates to UNRWA's operation, is that while the majority of the money, the third of UNRWA's annual budget, does indeed come from the United States, every time these questions have been put on the forefront, the government of Israel said no, because the argument has been that as problematic, as difficult as UNRWA uh, is, if UNRWA does not provide the services, it's going to be Israel's responsibility. And Israel does not want to take responsibility over uh, those services. And so that's kind of been the tension. What has shifted over the past uh, few years, and, and this started, uh, I would say, with uh, then-former MK and the Labor Party, Anat Vilf, who was able to get a letter from the Department of Defense 
Department of Defense in Israel uh, has a real good understanding of defense issues and on-the-ground matters as it relates to Israel's citizens. However, they lack a little bit, I would say even more than that, when it comes to the historical political uh, understanding of the problem at large. So the letter that Vilf was able to attain was to argue that basically they will not go against their own legislation related to ending the right of return. So you are seeing now, and I think that Barkat's um, letter as it relates to Shafat, as it relates to, in general, UNRWA's operation, exactly what is a refugee camp. Shafat, uh, for those of you, for the, for those of the listeners who are not aware, is actually a neighborhood in East Jerusalem, uh, hardly a, uh, a refugee camp in the image of no running water or no electricity or no Wi-Fi for that matter, uh, that they, they will, not, that they will not be able to continue those services in really areas that have been already resettled for that matter. So, so you are seeing right. a tandem move, I would say, between Israel and the United States to try to tackle this problem, and that is indeed a unique opportunity, which we've not seen over the past few years. Right, and, and it's not just like UNRWA is the only uh, provider in town in the Palestinian aid assistance game. There's USAID, there's the European Coordinator for Humanitarian Aid Office. Every country that's a donor to UNRWA also has their own humanitarian aid programs to the Palestinians. So. Maybe this is an opportunity to treat the Palestinians as a people in need rather than this politically charged definition of refugee, which continues ever expanding the amount of uh, Palestinians that consider themselves to have the right to return to Tel Aviv or Haifa or, uh, or Jerusalem or anywhere else for that matter in the uh, nation state of Israel. Uh, so well, that's exactly, that's exactly the point. I mean, I think that, you know, ending the right of return, even from the United States, foreign policy perspective is really about the fact that people will not receive aid based on a fallacious status, but actual based on needs. So there has to be a needs assessment. Uh, and I think that that's exactly the point, that refugee status has become a uh, a badge of honor rather than actual uh, needs assessment for individuals who actually need aid. And that, I think, is where we need to be doing a lot of work to improve that. And uh, for anyone who wants to read your articles, I believe they can go to Romorowski.com, R-O-M-I-R-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And also, can you give us the website for SPME? SPME is SPME.org. And, of course, uh, the Middle East Forum. Uh, also, if, uh, you can see my work there as well under my name as well. So all over the place and uh, you know, happy to share whatever, what, whatever anybody wants to read on this, uh, on this very complicated and very important topic. Asaf, thanks for joining us today. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. Closing thoughts after these messages. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in, from Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations, to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, 
we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. For the final closing thoughts, we were able to cover the U.S. interest towards Saudi Arabia and also the extensive going-ons between Israel and Hamas, followed up by a recent conference at UCLA uh, highlighted by Dr. Safra Moransky from Scholars for Peace in the Middle East and a Middle East Forum Fellow, and then a little bit more on the updates regarding the Palestine refugee crisis. I think that we have a situation right now where America is spread thin in the Middle East in terms of its ability to operate, whether it be Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and other countries, especially with an ever-cognizant watch towards Iran, the greatest threat to Middle East security for the United States today, and also some other actors that are coming out of the woodwork, like Qatar and its influence operations over American business interests and political interests here in Washington and in New York City, and also the threat of tomorrow, that of Turkey. The U.S. needs its allies to be able to bolster its interests in that region. And without those allies, America is weaker. Now, sometimes when Israel or Saudi Arabia or any other country that finds itself on the side of American interests in the region goes astray, it's better to bring them back into the fold than to repudiate them and to put them into the hands of other actors, whether it be Iran or, in a recent report that came out in Saudi Arabia, turning towards Russia or China for their weapons and other kinds of procurement. Only when America is able to have reliable allies on its side is it able to find itself in a more secure position. This was a position that was abandoned by the United States. This is a position that we had to find ourselves reliving after the Obama administration ended. Donald Trump has doubled down on his commitment to America's allies. Now it's fine and reasonable to expect America's allies to reaffirm their commitment to the United States. Thanks again to Delaney Janchik for putting together this program together and everyone else at the Middle East Forum. We'll talk to you next week. Signing off.